Good morning. Honored to be with you this morning. Uh, was appreciative that they picked a very simple topic for me to share on why does God allow pain and suffering? It's a big question. It's a short amount of time that I'll be sharing. Um, but I would imagine that all of us experience pain and suffering. If you haven't, um, hold, hold on to your seat. You probably will uh, in time. As I reflect over my own life, um, I think about questions that come up when we experience pain and suffering. Some of the questions that came to mind are, how did you respond when you had experiences of pain and suffering? Were there conclusions you drew as a result of the pain that you were experiencing? Were there conclusions you drew about God? Were there conclusions you drew about yourself? Uh, in my own journey, <clears throat> as a 59-year-old now, there's probably a variety of things that I look to in my own life. Certainly, you can't compare pain. So depending on what our suffering is, I could look at an experience like the Holocaust and say, but I've never suffered like those, like the Jews suffered in that context. But suffering is suffering, so it's really difficult to compare our experience of pain with another's. But as I look over my life, um, probably the first experience that became very formative was being sexually abused at the age of 10. A very confusing experience, very disorienting. And when I spoke to my parents about it, their responses were not what I would have expected. The message I got was, this is something you never talk about. So throughout my own adolescence, I struggled with the confusion of how do I make sense of this experience that I've had. As a 26-year-old, we gave birth to our first of two daughters. Uh, her name's Amanda. Uh, she was born with Down syndrome. So within the first hours of her birth, when our medical doctor told us, I believe your daughter may have Down syndrome, it was kind of like running into a wall. There was a lot of questions going on inside of me as a result of that experience. Uh, actually, I would even say for me it was a crisis of faith. And I'll say a little bit more about that experience myself. There was someone I heard that surveyed uh, pain and suffering, what, what would be the worst of human suffering. And some of the feedback that came from that survey was that the top three in this response was watching your kids suffer. That's a very powerless feeling. Uh, also, death of a loved one, which is a pretty common experience that most of us often have faced. Uh, and thirdly, betrayal by those you love. As a professional counselor, I sit with people every day of the week, most weeks, and hear about people's story, stories of sickness, cancer, heartache, shame, uh, self-disdain, bullying, injustice, loneliness, addictions, relational breakdown, divorce, infidelity, uh, losses like loss of job, loss of a home, loss of a body part, um, school shootings, addictions, um, even natural disasters. Your basement is flooded today. Uh, flooding, hurricanes, tornadoes, all the range that we all come into contact with suffering on some level of suffering and pain. We read this morning from the book of Job. If there's an Old Testament figure that seems to be the grandfather of pain and suffering, Job would certainly seem like that individual. Um, <clears throat> he's a real person. Sometimes we read biblical characters and we imagine them as lofty place and don't see them as human, somebody that might be like your next-door neighbor. Job was healthy. He was very godly. 
we as readers of his story are granted a privilege that he wasn't granted, and that's to eavesdrop in on this conversation between God and Satan in the heavenlies about what's actually occurring. Following the reading that was shared this morning, um, we're told that in the course of a day that Job lost his oxen and donkeys and his farmhands were killed. That was attending to them. He, fire from heaven, burned up his sheep, herds, and all his shepherds, and he lost all his children in that one day. And it follows at the end of chapter 1 of Job that Job did not sin by blaming God. Second chapter is like round two. Satan comes back to God and says, well, any man will praise you as long as you don't touch their health, as long as you don't threaten their life. And God grants again that Satan can have access to Job. Um, and Satan then brings a, a case of boils, a breakout on his skin. Job's wife response, wife's response, not too helpful. She says, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job replies, you talk like a godless woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? And so all in, in all of this, Job said nothing wrong. It's interesting to me, following that, end of chapter 2, three of Job's friends shows up, show up to console him. Um, and probably their words are the most effective in those first seven days of just sitting with Job in his suffering. Basically, it says, no one said a word, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. Imagine for a moment that those you not only suffer, those around you suffer. And I'm curious, what are the words you use when you reach out to those around you that are suffering? And I'd like to propose to you, Scripture suggests that probably one of the most meaningful things we could do is to cry with those that are crying. Sometimes, as was said of Job, um, nothing should be said for the suffering is so great for words. Sadly, the book doesn't end there. For Job, it goes on where his counselors give a lot of counsel, and a lot of the counsel centers around how do we make sense of the suffering in your life, Job, and certainly you must either have pride or you must have sinned or there must be something uncovered, and God's exposing it now through your suffering. And that's one of the ways we can respond to others. Uh, and I'll give you a variety of ways we might respond to others that actually don't help those that are suffering, that I can actually add to the pain of their suffering. Have you ever been spoken to with these expressions, or have you ever used them yourself when you're facing somebody that's in a difficult place? Would we ever say to somebody... <clears throat> Sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Would we ever say to somebody, everything happens for a reason? I know just how you feel. It could be worse. Every cloud has a silver lining. You need to have more faith. You need to pray more. You need to go to church more. You need to do more of this. Anytime we act like there's an easy answer, it often brings little comfort to those that are suffering. In fact, sometimes our pat religious answers can add pain to the sufferer feeling alone. 
Tim Keller in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, good, good read, good resource, uh, makes mention of an old saying, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. But that's a powerful message. The idea, the meaning behind it, the same traumatic experience can ruin or devastate one person and actually make another person stronger. My own testimony of my daughter being born with Down syndrome, um, it left me in a crisis of faith with a, a plethora of questions about what does this mean and how do I make sense of it. If you're curious to know more about my story, on our webpage, journeycounselingministries.org, you go on that site and click blog. I wrote a blog on uh, when things are not the way they're supposed to be. Um, So it might be my purpose in writing the blog was just the idea to give people a sense of hope and what were some of my life lessons that I learned when walking through a darker time in my own life. But some of the questions I had in those first 24 hours of learning that my daughter had Down syndrome was, will she understand a world she doesn't see, much less the world she does see? If my spiritual values are so at the core of me, how will I transmit that to my daughter if she doesn't understand that world? Will I be indebted to hospitals for the rest of our lives? Um, We learned within a very short period of time that she had a hole between the two lower chambers of her heart. And if that an operation didn't occur in a short window of time, other, her other bodily organs would be stressed, trying to compensate for what the heart wasn't able to effectively do. Does God expect me to trust him for physical healing? I was in a church that believes we should pray for those that are sick and the expectation that by the grace of God, they will be healed. So this weight of a father asking, do you expect me to change, to pray and trust you to change every chromosome in her body that she'll wake up tomorrow and not have Down syndrome. Are you punishing me for early experiences in my life? You know, my sexual abuse I had never control, uh, no control over, but it aroused sexual things in my life at a younger age than would have been normal, which led to some sexual struggles. And I thought, maybe God's punishing me. And would you allow my daughter to suffer in order to teach me a lesson? My own pain and suffering... Um, as I look back on that place today, my daughter's 32 years old. She lives with us. She's quite, uh, she's independent in a lot of ways. I sometimes think she understands God better than I understand. She's a worshiper at heart. Um, She's pretty, she's quite social and quite delightful. Um, But as I look back on that season in my life, I would just have to say today, looking back in hindsight, that's probably some of the most significant growth that's ever happened in my life was in a season of struggle, a season of pain and suffering. And I would propose to you, suffering can bring to the forefront of our focus a couple core issues. Who is God? And what's he really like? In your time of suffering, what did you believe about God? What did you believe about yourself? I was in a recent small group that we were looking at Psalm 139. It starts out like this. O Lord, you've examined my heart, and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my every thought when far away. What are you feeling as I read that passage? Does it conjure up fear? Maybe he's a critical dad who's looking for my failure as opposed to looking for my walk to correct me. Do you feel peace and comfort? Are you seeing him as a God who's good, compassionate, loving? that he fully knows me 
and that he fully loves me, even in that knowledge of knowing me. And looking for my good. You know, back to Job, God never seems to address, at least my reading of Job, God never seems to address that question of why. Why did you allow me to suffer to he and his friends? The answers that I get from Job have a whole lot more to do with what. What am I to do when I find myself in that place of suffering? I don't think God takes any offense at our why questions. But sometimes our what questions, what do I do when I come face with this, might be of more value, of more help. Even this week, um, as I was reflecting on Scripture, felt like God was speaking to me. Psalm 139.5 says, You both precede me and follow me. Another translation, NIV says, You hem me in behind and before. I don't know how you converse with God in Scripture, whether you have conversational prayer with God as you read Scripture and you invite him to speak to you. I was reading this passage. I was just waiting in his presence. And the first sense that came to me was that that hemmed in behind and before was that awful feeling I would have when my older brother or my cousin would hold me down and restrain me that I couldn't move, that kind of claustrophobic feeling that you feel like you're going to come apart at the seams. Uh, I went from that to God seemed to take me to this picture of my daughter the day she was having her open-heart surgery. And the nurse turned to me, with Down syndrome children, your veins are much smaller, so a task like putting an IV in becomes rather traumatizing because they're poking and poking and poking to get the vein to be able to put the IV in. But her veins are so small, that was a much more difficult task. Finally, in frustration, mine and the nurses, of her poking my daughter, which as an eight-month-old, how do you explain to an eight-month-old? I mean, she's looking at me like, Dad, why are you letting this happen? Or at least that's my imagination in the absence of her words. But the nurse finally said, I'm going to need to cut down her wrist to get to a vein, and I need you to hold her hand while I cut down her wrist. It was horrible. (laughs) It was an awful experience. Um, But the God took me to that as a parent, holding her wrist and that look into her eye. And in that moment of conversation with God and reflection, I felt like God was saying, in allowing you freedom to interpret pain and suffering, in other words, I've given you free will. I've let you choose to be in relationship with me. I'll never force your relationship. But in allowing you those freedoms, I run the risk that when you're in pain and when I choose to work for your good, you might not, you might misunderstand. You might misinterpret. So in that moment, my only imagination was, how can an eight-month-old understand that dad's holding my wrist still while I'm suffering great pain? And it's like he's party to the offense. He's not resolving it. Most of us tend to look at our lives through the lens of security. Uh, Sometimes we don't even know the motives of our heart, and the Holy Spirit will show us a motive and will say, gag me with a spoon. I want to think I'm more mature than that. I'm further along in my growth than that. But sometimes we look to know God because we want to understand what the rules are because we find ourselves believing we'll find security. If we play by the rules, we can protect ourselves from potential pain. Now, we may not knowingly think those things. But sometimes when God doesn't perform in the ways that we expect that he should be performing, we find out we had expectation of what it was supposed to look like. 
I would like to propose to you that security in the midst of our suffering might center more in what do we believe about God's character? If I'm looking at my circumstances for security, today it's going to be up, a flood, a storm. We're all at the grocery store buying our bread and water. Um, we're preparing. We're doing what we can to protect ourselves from pain. We want security. But when we look to our circumstances in a broken, fallen world, that the circumstances are up today and down tomorrow, we can follow that up and downness. I'd propose to you our greater security rests in God, God's character. When we're faced with suffering, will we choose to believe that God is who he says he is, that he in fact is good? C.S. Lewis, in his writing of The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, there's a conversation, it's a children's book, it's kind of an allegory of spiritual principles. Uh, Aslan the lion is a picture of Jesus. Uh, and even the animals talk in this place. And then there's two, two boys, two girls that are sons of Adam, daughters of Eve. And the youngest daughter of Eve's, her name is Lucy, and she's having this conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And she learns that Aslan is a, land, a, a lion. She thought he was a man. She learns that he's a lion. And she's wondering, is he safe? So she turns to, uh, to Mr. Beaver and he goes, then he isn't safe, said Lucy, referring to Aslan. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I, I said to Pastor Kevin this morning, I sometimes don't like pictures of Jesus because it kind of shows him as weak and effeminate. And, um, and, but yet, how do you capture the idea of strength, a strength that we would be in awe of, and yet tenderness, gentleness, compassion, his character being good. So we ask questions about God. Is he really good? Can I trust that he's good? We also ask questions about ourselves. Some of my question was, am I going through suffering because I'm not measuring up? I'm not being a good son. I'm not doing it good enough. I'm struggling with an area of brokenness. You know, on each of the continuum, we can err on the side of pride. Pride being that I'm so arrogant that I rise up in judgment over God. You know, certainly a just God would do it this way or that way. Or I could be on the other end of the continuum. I could have such a low self-regard that that I'm self-critical and self-disdaining and woe is me, I'm such a worm. Um, another writing of um, Tim Keller is called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. This talks about this idea of what really is humility. Is humility the idea that I'm a worm? Or is, is humility thinking not less of myself, but thinking of myself less in order of frequency, how much time. If I rest in the place that God fully loves me, knowing my strength and my weakness, I'm free to shift my focus to others. If I'm in self-disdain and, and I'm woe is me, I'm stuck in that place where most of my thoughts center around me. Suffering has a way of exposing. What are my attitudes? What are my beliefs about myself? You know, this is a big subject. This is probably a sermon series that could be multiple, multiple sermons. Um, if I were in a very cursory way, if you were to ask me in an elevator as we're going up to a fifth floor, um, why, what's the scripture, what do you go to when you try to answer this question of why suffering? Um, in a very brief way, I probably would take them to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. 
just the idea of God's creating all these things. And each time he creates another part of his creation, he says in his evaluation that it is good, that it is good. And he creates man and he looks over all his creation and he says, this is very good. This is very good. And yet chapter 2 talks us about this, to us about this intimacy between uh, Adam, Eve, and God, this walking in the garden, this sharing our thoughts, sharing our feelings, sharing our life, this intimacy, which is a part of authentic relationship. We can't be in relationship with somebody we don't trust. You know, when I sit with a couple that's walked through an infidelity, there's an issue of forgiveness, but then secondarily there's this issue of trust. If I'm the offender that I reach for another person, I have a responsibility to rebuild trust that I've destroyed. Imagine in the garden there's this level of trust. Adam and Eve are fully naked and yet unashamed. They're not self-absorbed, self-aware with their nakedness. They feel so fully accepted. They're free to focus on God, the garden, and everything around them. So we get this picture of authentic relationship and intimacy. We move on and find out in chapter 3 that there was one rule. God gave them everything. But he said there's this one rule in the garden, and that's that you're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That one thing. And yet, we are introduced in chapter 3 that the serpent enters in. He deceives Eve. Eve eats of the fruit. doesn't say Adam was deceived. She gives him the fruit. He also partakes of the fruit. And God said, you will surely die if you do this. Now, die didn't translate into immediate death, physical death, but there was a spiritual death. That meaning for the word death was separation. You will be separated from me, the source of life. So original sin brought pain and suffering into our world. God longed for intimacy and relationship with us. Original sin, though, brought us an understanding of how things should be. We have a knowledge of good and evil. Where were you on the day that you heard that Virginia Tech had a mass shooting on campus? And what was your first instinct? This is awful. This is evil. This is so wrong. Innocent people, such injustice. You know, we have a knowledge of good and evil. But with that knowledge of good and evil and the freedom for us to choose, God didn't make us robots if you, if you want him to take freedom of choice, imagine at the end of the service we're going to get in a line and you're going to hand in your free choice pass to pastor and you're now going to be programmed to do everything just right. Who would want to be in that kind of relationship? I mean, I come home and my wife goes down the litany of things that she's done that day that, that her, were the things she was supposed to do. Is that love? Is that connection? I, I propose not. Is our disobedience, in our disobedience, God appropriately judged? Imagine for a moment, and maybe this isn't too hard of an imagination. Imagine in some time in the recent year, few years, you've been in a grocery store, some public setting, and a child in the presence of her parent or their parent or his parent uh, decides to have a meltdown, and they're screaming at the top of their lungs. And they're screaming at the top of their lungs. And they continue to scream at the top of their lungs. What are you feeling in that moment? 
parents present, not responding. I don't know about you, and maybe this is ungracious of me, but there's something inside of me saying, would you do something with that kid? (laughs) How would you view God if his prized creation, he says you can have everything, everything, but this one thing you can't have, and there was disobedience, and God did nothing. Would that be a, a holy God? Would that be a just God? What would you think of him? Genesis 3 says his judgment was on humanity for woman, that she would bear pain in childbirth, that she would be, uh, she would be ruled over by her husband. Uh, no big surprise that there's conflict at times between gender. Uh, for man, that the ground would be cursed. Imagine for that a moment that ground would be cursed refers to the environment, the animals, the weather, that those things that maybe had a certain particular order that was protective are now tainted as well and would be impacted. Those are the passages I would go to. As man moves further from God, it seems like we become less. The sense of law in our mind seems to leave us. That sense of order and law uh, seems to become less. The Old, Old Testament talks about people became a law unto themselves and they did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. God's justice and holding us to accountability is very different at times than our own justice. But the reality is because of the fall, we live in a battlefield. We live in a battlefield, a warfare between God and his enemy, Satan. It's really interesting, though, that our first instinct when we experience suffering is, well, God, how could you? Instead of, there must be a devil. Isn't that interesting? There's only one player when we experience suffering. We don't acknowledge that there is a warfare going on. God is in control. Satan had to go to God to get permission to touch Job's life. Could it be that the moral of the story is God is good and mankind is not? J.L. Mackey, an atheist philosopher, makes the conclusion, and I cite him just because it's, it's typical of atheist thinking, if, if there is a God, if there is a good God, there wouldn't be pain and suffering in this world. If there is God, he's either not good enough to care or powerful enough to stop it. So basically the atheist comes to the conclusion that pain and suffering is basically pointless. I don't know about you, but I don't find much comfort in that option. (laughs) That it's just fate and my pain and suffering is pointless. I'd like to propose to you in my wrapping up three perspectives that might be helpful for you when you're in the midst of suffering. One is that maybe suffering isn't pointless. You know, we sometimes wrongly conclude, if I can't see a reason for suffering, then there must be none. Have you ever heard of the bug called a noceum? I first discovered a noceum. My wife and I honeymooned on Sanibel Island, which is out from Fort Myers in Florida on the Gulf side. And there's this place called Bowman Pass. Um, Sanibel is considered the seashell capital. I don't know if it's of the world or what, but they're supposed to be a, a seashell capital. Um, and Bowman's Pass is supposed to be a place where you get the best shells if you go early in the morning. So on our honeymoon, we're up early one morning out at Bowman's Pass to gather shells, 
And all of a sudden, we just start, we're, look, we're feeling these nippets at our skin, but we look and we see nothing. And the instinct is to slap your arm, but it feels kind of silly because you don't see anything. The idea that, you know, no see um, though our eye can't detect them, they're clearly there. So, so the notion that, that, that if there's a pup tent and you see a St. Bernard in the pup tent, we're probably not going to disagree. There's a St. Bernard in that pup tent. But if we look in a pup tent to say, is there no seams in here? It would sure look like there's no seams in there. Unless you got in the pup tent and got bit, you might not know that there's no seams there. The point being, if our suffering maybe isn't pointless, you know, we're told of Job that he never fully understood. At least we don't have indication that he did in his lifetime. Why? Why did I go through suffering? But he did seem to come to the conclusion, should I just accept good from you and not evil? Are you still God? Are you still higher than me? Are your ways higher than mine? Your thoughts higher than mine? The story of Joseph, Genesis 37 to 50. He and his his brothers sell him into slavery. He's basically 13 years in slavery in jail. Can you imagine, after interpreting dreams and ending up in jail, that you'd have much appetite for continuing to interpret dreams. But it's indicative of the fact that on some level, Joseph didn't give up. He trusted God. So in that time, um, he gets through that experience. It, It becomes apparent that he becomes the prime minister of Egypt. He saves a whole population of people from famine, even his own brothers and family. And at a time that he could serve um, retaliation, um, he basically says to his brothers, don't worry, God sent me here. What you did for evil, God used for good. So his understanding of what happened clearly happened at a much later point. So maybe suffering isn't pointless. We might not always understand it. I'd have to say about my own sexual abuse experience that pain that I went through ended up being the, the context that God led me into a, a, a vocation of counseling. Part of receiving comfort from God, connection with God, created a longing inside of me of how do I walk alongside others when they're in similar kind of pain. A second perspective, while I may not understand why suffering, I can trust it isn't a lack of God's love for me. You know, God could have easily stood afar off in our brokenness with disgust. You've made this mess for yourself. Well, now you have to live with it. But he didn't. He came. He came into a life of suffering. He humbled himself. He came and suffered with you, alongside you, in equally difficult circumstances, many times, and even worse, different circumstances, because He wanted you to know you have a God that identifies with your suffering. He doesn't stand off on some lofty place apart from your pain and suffering. The third perspective is the idea that God is a redeeming God. And in Revelation, he actually says in uh, Revelation 21, he talks about a new heaven and a new earth. And in that place, he's going to remove all sorrow, all death, all crying, all pain, for the old world and its evils will be gone. And he says, I'm making all things new. As I meditate on that scripture, I don't know what that means to you, but all things new doesn't mean just bringing people back to life, but means that they would be alive. 
doesn't mean he'll stop suffering, but even the impact of that suffering would be new. It's kind of like a reboot. It's kind of like a fresh new heaven, a fresh new earth, and a context that you would be put in where you wouldn't experience suffering. So two thoughts. If you're a follower of Christ today, one is, we read the passage John 9, the blind man from birth. It happened to him, Jesus said, so that you could watch him experience God's miracle. Why would that be relevant? That we would observe God's actions. Could it be that when we observe God's intervention, there's something inside of us that says, in fact, he does care. In fact, he is a God of mercy. So if you're a follower of Christ today, my prayer would be, if you're in a place of suffering, that God would comfort you, that he would meet you in that place, that we as the body of Christ would stand around you in that, plain, in that pace of, a place of pain, not just giving you easy answers, but walking with you in that pain, but also that our lives would become that message that whatever comfort we receive, could we be transmitters of that comfort? Could we be receptacles? Could we be instruments of reconciliation to the world? If you don't know Christ today and you're not a follower, I would just say to you, if you don't know authentic relationship with him, you can experience that by acknowledging your brokenness, by trusting in the work that he's done to redeem you, and by inviting him into that place of lordship in your life today.